we're starting a new series called Uncommon. And we're going to look at uh, some Old Testament characters. And they were pretty common people, but they did some uncommon things. And so that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks, uh, really up until about Christmas time. And then uh, in December, we're going to um, talk about, I don't know, maybe Jesus' birth or something like that. Uh, so it's kind of the plan. But today we're talking about Esther, which is a really cool uh, story. So if you want to find it in your Bibles, if you can find Psalms and Proverbs, that's kind of in the middle, go back <laughs> toward the front a couple of chapters, and that's Esther. It's kind of right there. And we're going to kind of overview it a little bit. Um, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was uh, after Sunday night church, you'd come home and you'd watch Mission Impossible. Anybody ever watch Mission Impossible? The thing about Mission Impossible is, can I cue the music? Ah, this is so awesome. If you didn't see the first two minutes of Mission Impossible, you might as well not even watch. Because Mr. Phelps, you all remember, right? He got... Um, a packet of information someplace, and he had a tape recorder, and he would play the tape, and it would play, and it would say, Mr. Phelps, Don uh, Jones got kidnapped, or whatever it was, and then uh, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is find John Jones, and then this tape will self-destruct in five seconds, and then at the end of that, uh, the tape would self-destruct, which is so cool, I never knew how that worked, and then Mr. Phelps had to decide if he was going to take the mission or not. Now, that makes sense in the context of life, frankly, because we all have a mission if we choose to accept it. And so we're going to kind of just jump right in. Uh, this is truths about life, but really we're going to find some truths about life from the book of Esther. The first one is we all have a mission in life. Sometimes we kind of wonder about it and we, I mean, sometimes even people fret, like I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but the Bible says we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You can read into that. Created in Christ Jesus for a mission. And then it says, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But we have to choose to accept it. So, we're going to see how that plays out in the life of Esther. Now, the book was set at about, oh, 470 B.C., before Christ. Uh, there was this really huge empire. Uh, Xerxes is the king over this empire, and he has a capital city called Susa. Let's look at it. Uh, these events happened in the days of Xerxes, the king who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. I want you to think how large that... Can you, can you do that... Uh, Pull up a map in your mind. Uh, that is this huge swath of, of land. 127 provinces. They would have to be all big uh, even at that. And at the, uh, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. Every government has a seat of power. Their seat of power was Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials. He invited all the military officials of Persia and Media as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. And the celebration lasted 180 days. That's a six-month party. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and the splendor of his majesty. If you are the king or if you are a leader, you have a mission. 
We all have a mission. Well, leaders have a mission. And the mission for a leader is, let's make things better for the people under me. That kind of should be, it's called servant leadership. And Jesus modeled that for us. And so Xerxes had a mission. Unfortunately, he doesn't really live up to his mission. Because right now, all he cares about is having this huge party and displaying his wealth. It's really kind of, he is, he is powerful, but he's not admirable. Uh, he's powerful, but he really doesn't do the things that he needs to do. Now, uh, one would guess, and now we're going to look at verse 5 in just a second, but after six months of hard partying, the next verse in my mind would say something like, um, he took a nap, you know, King Xerxes took a nap, or he did a serious colon cleanse, you know, or uh, he, uh, uh, he got on an exercise regiment. Not so much with King Xerxes. When it was all over, the king gave another banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. So this guy, uh, he puts the animal in party animal. I mean, he is all about the party. Now, I think it's interesting. The first party was for the noble, the noble people, you know, the important folks. That one lasted six months. And now he's having a party for the peons, and that lasts seven days. Not quite the same uh, level of partying, but still quite the party. And he's throwing it for everybody. Okay, so let's assume you live in Susa at the time. and let, there, there had to be thousands and thousands of people living there. And they're invited to the king's palace for a party. Now, just to be able to house everybody would have been this huge place. And then he wants to display his wealth. And so the courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons uh, to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. And we read that and you kind of gloss over it a little bit, but understand something. This is wildly expensive only a king could afford something like this uh, to have even marble. And then it says gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement. I don't even know what this is, but of porphyry, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs. Think about that. Everybody got a different cup, and they were all gold goblets. When we have a party, it's red solo cups, uh, not the king, Xerxes, right? Uh, gold goblets, many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. He wanted the people to know how powerful and wealthy he was. Basically, it was an open bar. He turned the king's palace into animal houses, basically what happened. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. This was a party. Now, kings have queens, and this king had a queen, and her name was Vashti, and she also had a party. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women of the royal palace, King Xerxes. Uh, by comparison, uh, there was no excess that we know of here at this party, and no juvenile behavior. Now, the king had been showing off his wealth, and now he wants to show off uh, another one of his possessions, his prized possessions. So on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, uh, he was a little tipsy, uh, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. Now, 
He'd shown off all his possessions, and now he wants to show off his wife. Um, do you suspect he wanted to show her off because of her brains? Like, hey, Vashti, come in here and let's have a discussion. We'll have a roundtable on, uh, you know, the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Or do you think uh, she, he wanted to show off her personality? Hey, Queen Vashti, tell a couple jokes. Uh, uh, not so much. Uh, this is what it says. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. And it doesn't give us the details, but it is likely that this would have been extremely humiliating. Uh, can you imagine uh, being a woman who is paraded in front of a bunch of hammered, um, ogling men? Uh, the idea here when it says that to gaze on her beauty uh, could have likely been uh, he would have paraded her in front of them scantily clad. And uh, surprisingly, Vashti <laughs> says no. Uh, it's like, uh, I get to be in front of a bunch of drunken dudes. Uh, I think I'm going to pass. So she gives it a hard pass. Like, I'm not doing that, but thanks for the invitation. And she says no. Now, this king of this enormous empire does not know what to do. It's really kind of interesting. He's got a wife that will not do what he says, and so he's like... I don't know what to do. So, next verse. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Because he's got a mission. And his mission, or his maybe we should call it his shadow mission. In fact, there was a guy named John Ortberg who talked about this one time. It's just really interesting that we all have a mission, but he had a shadow mission. Uh, king Xerxes, here's what happens. If you're not focused on what God wants you to do, and if you don't commit to it, then you easily drift into something else. Xerxes' mission should have been to help his kingdom, to help his people. What he degenerated into or drifted into was a shadow mission of self-indulgence. And she struck at his pride. You know it's a shadow mission when it really involves your pride. And so he didn't like it. And so he immediately consulted with his wise advisors. Get this. The, the most powerful man in the kingdom doesn't know how to control his wife. So he calls in the Supreme Court. Uh, my wife won't listen to me and I don't know what to do. That's kind of his complaint. Uh, and they, uh, they knew the Persian laws and the customs. For he always sought their advice. He is a leader who does not know how to make decisions. You see it throughout the story. And so he doesn't know what to do. Vashti has challenged his authority, and he's mad about it, and he doesn't know what to do. So he consults these leaders, these wise men. And this is their suggestion. We suggest that you issue a written decree. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes. Time out. Tell Queen Vashti not to come see you, which is the thing she wasn't going to do anyway. Uh, it's kind of uh, what, what they say. But here's what this, it troubles them. And that the king choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. How many people believe that worked? Yeah, 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 yeah. But the advice was, we have to make an example of her. You can't have wives not doing what husbands say. And so uh, let's, let's depose her, and then we'll come up with another queen, 
and she will be queen, and Vashti will be uh, not queen. And King Xerxes liked this plan. Now, if you're the king, you have a bodyguard, an entourage of strapping young men who are to protect you. They are to make sure nobody gets too close to you. They are young, high testosterone men. And they offer now the king some advice. Um, let's just think for a second. If you're going to come up with a new queen, what sort of advice do you think these young men might come up with? Do you think it'll be wise and intelligent? Do you think they're going to say, hey, we should look for a woman who uh, is going to be your queen who will be great at helping you lead the nation? Or we need to get a queen that will be great at foreign policy? Or we need to get a queen that will be great at economics? Yeah, it it doesn't work that way. After Xerxes' anger had subsided, his personal attendants, his bodyguard, suggested, let's search for the empire for somebody beautiful. Let's get a beautiful girl. Let's, let's, let's do that. Uh, a, a beautiful virgin for the king. Let the king appoint agents in every province to bring these beautiful women into the royal harem and see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. And this advice was appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Their advice was, let's have a beauty contest. That was it. Can you imagine? I mean, in our sophisticated world today, can you imagine, can you even believe there was once a day when a middle-aged man would try to impress others with a young woman, you know, young, beautiful woman. I mean, it doesn't happen today, but back in the day, that seemed to be the case. And even today, we have shows like American Idol or uh, America's Got Talent or The Bachelor. And the notion is, if you wow us, then you win. And this is what happened. In this huge kingdom of 127 provinces, they had many... They had M I N I many um, and M A N Y uh, many little um, province beauty pageants, and if you win your province beauty pageant, then you got to go to the big beauty pageant and try to win the king's favor. It, it's, it feels a whole lot like uh, Miss America, right? You have you know Miss Kentucky, and you have Miss South Carolina. You have Miss Tennessee, and she's missing a couple teeth. And, and they all go, they all go to, uh, uh, they all go to, and, but her talent is spitting tobacco. You know, it's really kind of, uh, uh. but they, they all go to one centralized location. And in this one particular province, there's a young woman by the name of Esther, who's Jewish. Now, it's important to note that Esther is an orphan, and she was taken care of by her cousin. His name is Mordecai, kind of, kind of an uncle-father figure he becomes to her. And Mordecai is prominent in the kingdom as well. Uh, Mordecai is, kind of sits at the gate. That means he is prominent. He's probably one of the high officials in the kingdom. And Esther competes in the beauty pageant, and she is now one of the 127 finalists. Now, before they could go into the king, it's not like you won the contest and then you all just went to the king. There, was, there were preparations. In fact, very detailed preparations were involved for these women to finally be presented to the king. Now, let's just ask a question, ladies, just for a second. I want to quiz you. Um, 
Have you ever, this isn't the quiz, but let's just, I want you to, I want to set it up. Has there ever been a time you were going to go out on a date with, with a dude and you really, really wanted to impress him? Um, so you really, you really prepared. You know, you, it, it took, you took a lot of thought in how, uh, what you're going to wear and, and, and preparations, you know, makeup and hair and all that kind of stuff. But just, just a quick, just a quick quiz. How many of you have ever spent more than an hour getting ready for a date? Maybe you should have. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the... I'm just saying. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out there. How many of you have ever had uh, spent more time uh, preparing for the date than you actually had on the date? I mean, that would be maybe. How many of you had more time getting ready for the date than the date? I mean, I think that sometimes happens. So, look at the preparation involved. Look at this. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. All right, these were either some very um, unattractive women on the front end, or they really, really wanted to make sure these gals were ready. And I think that's probably the case. Uh, 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months of oil and myrrh, and six of perfumes and cosmetics. And can you imagine, you take 12 months to get ready for the first date, and you lose. I mean, uh, that, that is heartbreaking. And, and so these 127 women, they all prepare for 12 months to go in to see the king. And only one becomes the victor, and her name is Esther. And the Bible says, the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. And I wonder if he even got through 127. It almost feels like Esther came in and wowed him to the degree that he says, the competition just needs to end right here. You are the best. That's kind of how it feels to me when I read it. She just wowed him. Now, let me see if you've been paying attention. If King Xerxes wants to celebrate Esther's victory, what do you think he did? He had a party, yeah. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor. And her mission becomes to be arm candy for the most powerful man in the world. And Esther and King Xerxes... Live happily ever after, except stories don't usually end like that unless you're in Disney. And if you read through the book of Esther, in chapter 3, you are introduced to an antagonist by the name of Haman. Haman has much power. In fact, he is kind of named second in charge by the king. And sometime later, King Xerxes promotes Haman over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. And all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him proper respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded it. But Mordecai, remember Mordecai? Esther's guardian? Well, he refused to bow down and show respect. And powerful people enjoy praise and they disdain disrespect. And Haman had a mission. And his mission was to attain as much power as possible and he wanted everyone to know it. And even the slightest affront at his power was uh, unbearable to him. 
And he uh, saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show improper respect. And he was filled with rage. And he had learned Mordecai's nationality, that he was a Jew, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands just on Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all Jews throughout the empire of Xerxes. He wanted to make an example of him. Where did he learn that, you wonder? I mean, the exact same thing Xerxes did? See, leadership, leadership is important because how you lead, the people under you follow. As a dad, as a mom, I mean, how you lead is how your kids are going to follow. And so it's so important. And Xerxes took this advice, and it was bad advice. He should have just gotten over himself, but he didn't. And now all this is happening. And Mordecai is in the crosshairs of a man named Haman simply because his pride had been bruised. And so... Haman goes to King Xerxes and he says, I've got quite the campaign donation for you. I've got lots of money I'd like to give you if you'll let me write a law. Hmm, interesting. Um, a lot of money can sway a politician uh, to write a law. I've never heard of such a thing. And uh, he says, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of money if you'll let me write a law. And Xerxes is like, I don't care. I mean, the dude's probably drunk. And uh, he's like, I don't care. Do what you want to do. And so Haman writes a law that basically in a few days, the Jews will be uh, free game. And you can annihilate them and take their stuff. That was the whole point of the law. Hey, kill the Jews and take their stuff. Now, people don't care about killing the Jews so much, but it's like, hey, I can take their stuff. Okay, well, I'll kill them and take their stuff. And that was the law that Haman wrote. And Mordecai... Here's about it. Now, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. This is an act of political protest. Um, when you put on sackcloth, sackcloth, sackcloth is like burlap. It'd be very coarse and, and itchy and uncomfortable. And ashes on your head and you sit in the dust. And, and people would see when he's wailing here loudly and bitterly, he is it's like having someone with a megaphone saying, uh, uh, this is wrong and this is unjust. And we see protests today. And so um, here we have Mordecai with a one-man protest. He is trying to defend his people, the Jews. By the way, interestingly enough, in the text it talks about how Esther sort of keeps the notion, keeps the fact that she is a Jew. She kind of keeps that on the down low. Doesn't tell anybody that. That's kind of a detail in her resume she leaves off. You see, the Jews were exiled to this country. They weren't in their home country. They weren't being occupied by somebody. They had already been occupied by somebody, and they were in exile. They weren't even in their home country. So the Jews, they, they were not in their own country. It was a dark time in their lives. And now this evil man named Haman decides he's going to put a bounty on their heads. And he does. Now, the third thing about life is this. We need people in our lives who will speak truth. Everybody needs it. Somebody needs, you need somebody to tell you the truth. 
Um, if I'm going out of the house and you know my collar's sticking half up, I want Miriam to say, you know, really, you you don't do don't do that. Don't look like that. Um, uh, you should have that. Everybody needs somebody. It could be your spouse. It could be your mama. It could be your daddy. It could be your friend. It, I don't care who it is, but everybody needs somebody to tell them the truth. And Mordecai uh, gave this guy named Hathak, he's sort of a messenger, uh, a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. See, Mordecai, like many men, is a problem solver. I got a big problem here. They're about to annihilate us. So let me come up with a solution. Who do we know that is, has access to the king? Hmm. hmm. Oh, oh, Esther. We don't have access to the king, but we know somebody that has access to the king and who has more access than the queen. And so it's like, hey, uh, Esther, this is really life and death important. We need you to go to the king. He says to beg for mercy. Don't, don't demand anything. We, we have no right to demand anything. But we need you to go on our behalf. Now, there's a protocol in visiting the king. The king sits on his throne. He has an audience only with the people he wants to have an audience with. If you and I wanted to go visit with President Biden, you can't just drive up to the White House, ring the doorbell, and go in and have an audience with him. You have, there's a protocol to that. You have to be invited or you have to sub, uh, submit a request and you have to be accepted. I, I've seen some biographies of Abraham Lincoln, and it's really interesting. People used to wait in the hallway just to meet him. Uh, they just kind of come off the street and chat with him. It's really, really interesting. Not that way today. And it wasn't that way with King Xerxes. And there were rules around going to see the king. And so Esther sends a message back to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die. If the king is sitting on his throne and he's got his golden scepter in his right hand and you show up and you aren't invited and he says nothing, you are taken out immediately and executed. What Mordecai is challenging Esther to do is to risk her life for her people. And I think about, I'm a, I'm a dad of daughters, I've got four, ranging from age 15 to 20 something, 27. And Esther was probably in that range, and likely, you know, 19, 18, 19 years old. Young 20s, early, uh, young 20s, uh, late teens. And Mordecai's best plan is, hey, go, go, go talk to the king. And so Esther says, I don't think so. I, I don't have that kind of access you're asking me to do something I can't do. I'm not allowed to go in. And then there's something else, Mordecai, you don't know. And you can almost, when she says this part, you can almost feel the emotion. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. You see... 
those other candidates, they didn't go home. They went into his harem. The king has a real full harem. And he's not a very devoted husband. And evidently, he's not as infatuated with her as he once was. And she has a good reason to question if he would even want to see her. Now, most friends at this point, if they were Mordecai, would say, I understand, it's okay, it's life and death, and we under, that, it's, it's too big an ask, and, and it's okay. Not so much Mordecai. In this timeless speech, he says, when Esther's words report to Mordecai, he sent this answer back. Do not think for a moment because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Somebody will find out. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise. Time out, time out, time out. Esther is unique. It's a really unique book because the word God is never said in the book of Esther, but he is alluded to throughout the book. And Mordecai is saying, hey, God's got our back, and He has chosen you. This is a great plan. He's chosen you. Don't think for a minute that if you remain silent, uh, relief for the deli- uh, and deliverance for the Jews w- will arise from another place. But you and your father, uh, your father's family will perish. And then he, uh, man, it is like the, the gut punch. And who knows, but that f- you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? We... we We see movies and there are these speeches and this is kind of one of those bombastic movie speeches that that just just resonates. Uh, You remember Jerry Maguire where he says, you complete me. And she's like, you had me at hello. Had me at hello. It's beautiful. Or Colonel Jessup, you want the truth? You got out of the truth. We love that, right? We love that. Or there's... Liam Neeson on Taken. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If it's a ransom you're after, you know, it goes on and on. Uh, 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 if you uh, uh, turn her over now, I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I mean, it's like, oh, 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 oh. and every dad uh, that watches that is like, that's right, that's right. We all know these classic speeches. Lloyd Valentine saying, so you're saying there's a chance. We all know him. This is better than that. This is much better than any of those. Esther, you have a mission. You didn't ask for it. You might not even be ready for it. But it's time. And you're going to have to step up. And Mordecai just challenges her. Hey, this is the reason you're there. Because can't you imagine that Mordecai's going, Oh, all the pieces make sense now. Esther is a beautiful woman, but man, there's a lot of beautiful women. But you became queen, and this is God's plan for you. And you're right in the perfect position. And so Esther, so brave, 
She says, okay. And when you're facing impossible things, you pray. And then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Think about the juxtaposition here. The king wants to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. Esther says, pray for me. Let's fast together. Let's join our hearts together. Go together. Uh, go gather the Jews in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. And I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And then in a line that is as magnificent in her courage as Mordecai's was in his challenge, she says, when this is done, I will go to the king, and even though he, it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. That is strong. King Xerxes, when he married <laughs> um, Queen Esther, I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. Mattel used to make Barbie dolls and they made G.I. Joes. And some of those had voice boxes where you could pull the, pull the voice box and, and it would say things. And in production one time, they got the voice boxes of the G.I. Joes got into the Barbies and the Barbies got into the uh, G.I. Joes. And you'd pull the G.I. Joe and he would say, uh, let's shop till we drop. And uh, uh, pull, the, pull the Barbie and she would say, hit the ground hard, hard, hard. And so he thought he was getting Barbie, but he really got a little G.I. Joe. And let's pause for just a second because it's really important to think about these two things. Do you know what your mission is? And are you aware that you can easily drift into a shadow mission? It's really important to understand. You have a mission. God has given you something to do. The second thing is, who is the Mordecai in your life? Who are you giving permission to to tell you the truth. Let's go on. We must decide if we're going to accept the mission. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. And there is this moment where you do not know, if she does not know, if the next few minutes are going to be life or death for her. We all face things that we'd rather not do. Every parent understands this. I have never wanted to get up in the middle of the night and feed one of our kids. And I haven't. Uh, but I've never wanted to. It's the beauty of breastfeeding. Just saying. Alright, that's I can't, I can't do that. Um, uh, but, I have gotten up and cleaned up dirty diapers. And I have uh, gone... Uh, in the cold to jumpstart cars. And every one of us has been challenged to do something that we don't want to do. We're all challenged with that. And Esther, I, I tell you, this is a story that is so magnificent. And she stands there in complete vulnerability. Life and death is sitting on the throne. And he extends the scepter and he says, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, 
Don't misunderstand this to mean he actually means he'd give her half the kingdom. He doesn't mean that. This is, this is king talk. This is sort of like, hey, you pick the movie tonight. Uh, that's kind of what he's saying. Uh, uh, you, you got a little, you know, I'm going to give you a little something, something. You know, it's not like I'm, you, got, you can't have the whole kingdom or anything. But uh, she takes it. Now, the, the book is so interesting here. It's been interesting the whole time, but it just really, it, it reads like a novel. It is an amazing story. Esther is really, really street smart. Jesus said it this way, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as cunning as serpents and as innocent as doves. And she is super, super street smart. And so if you're in Esther's position and you want to find favor with the king and you know what the king likes, what do you think she invited him to do? Hey, come to a party. I've arranged a party. Hey, hey, why don't you bring Haman? You and Haman, come on over. We're going to come on over to the queen's palace and we're going to have a party. And <laughs> that king doesn't say no to a party. So it's like, yeah, what time? And so they show up that night and they have a party. And at the end of the dinner, uh, King Xerxes says, oh, Esther, this was great. Uh, those are some good ribs. Uh, tell me, tell me. What, what really do you want? And she, uh, she outmaneuvers everybody. Uh, it is really interesting to read the book. She, she is cunning. And she says, oh, king, if you are pleased with this party, guess what? I'm having another party tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. And it doesn't read in the text like this, but you have to understand the culture. When King Xerxes is said, I'm coming back tomorrow. Yes, the second party, I'm in. When he says I'm in, he's basically saying, when I come back tomorrow, you tell me anything you want and I will grant it. It's almost as if he's saying, here is a blank check. I'm giving it to you now. Now, there's this little side story. Remember, you have Haman. Haman's supposed to come to the second party too. And he hates Mordecai, and he hates Mordecai's people. And the first party is just over. And Haman went out after that and was happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage at Mordecai. And he goes home and he tells his wife. And his wife, who must have been a lovely woman, said, why don't you build a gallows 75 feet tall and let's just hang that dude. And Haman's like, sweet, let's do that. And so uh, they build, they start to build this gallows. The king goes to sleep that night, but he can't sleep. And when the king can't sleep, can't nobody sleep. That's kind of how it goes in the king in the palace. And so he calls one of his servants to read to him, because when you're the king, you don't have to read to yourself. And uh, he calls the guy in, and he wants a special book read. It's called The Annals of the King. Guess what that's about? Uh, the king. And it just so happens that he opens the story to this assassination attempt that was thwarted by a guy. And he goes, well, who was the guy? He was like, well, the guy was Mordecai. And he goes, well, what did we do for Mordecai? We haven't done anything for Mordecai. So the next morning, it's just dripping with irony. Haman shows up, ready to ask the king to execute Mordecai. Before he could start his spiel, his pitch, uh, the king says, hey, 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 Haman, I have a question. There's a guy in the kingdom I really want to honor how would you do that? And Haman's thinking, well, who does he want? Who would he want to honor more than me? So he says, hey, this is what I do. I would 
I would parade him around. I'd have somebody parade him around on one of the king's horses. <laughs> By the way, it, it says that the king's horses even have the crown. Really funny. Uh, uh, one of the king's horses, put a king's robe on him and have somebody like a one-man parade. And King Xerxes is like, that is awesome. I'd like to honor Mordecai and I want you to lead the horse. And it all, I mean, as bad as that is, it really goes downhill for Haman after that. Second party happens. They get to the end of the party. Xerxes is like, honey, what do you really, really want? She says, you know, I wouldn't bother you with this, but this is for my people. I am a Jew, and there has been a law written to eradicate the Jews. Would you please not do that? And Xerxes is like, what? Well, who wrote that stupid law? Like, well, it was Haman. It's like, oh. And Xerxes gets mad because he seems to get mad a lot. And he walks out of the room and Haman sidles over to Esther and says, whoa, 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 I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. And Xerxes comes back in and Haman's right there next to Esther. That's a bad move. That's a bad, bad move. And the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, he was hung on that day. And... Xerxes is like, well, now I need a new chief of staff. And Esther said, well, how about Mordecai? Done. Done. And then Esther says, can I write a different law about the whole Jew thing? Can we not kill all the Jews? He's like, write the law. And here's what we're going to close with. God is always working behind the scenes. What are the odds of 127 provinces, probably I would say millions of women are eligible to become queen. What are the odds that the queen is Queen Esther? And what are the odds of all the people in the kingdom, all the people in the town of Susa, what are the odds that the one person who hears about this assassination attempt happens to mean Mordecai? What are the odds? And what are the odds that... This evil man, Haman, who builds a gallows to execute Mordecai is the one who hangs on his own gallows. What are, what are the odds? And what are the odds that the ring of, of power that was placed on Haman's finger was taken off and placed on Mordecai's finger? What are the odds? You see, sometimes we don't see God at work. And remember, these are people in exile. They don't have a country. They don't have a land. They don't have a palace. They don't have a, a temple of anything. But in the story of Esther, God is saying to His people, the situation might look dim and dire, but I'm at work. Never forget, I'm at work. You have a mission. I have a mission. And God is working behind the scenes so that we can accomplish our mission. But we have to choose to accept it. This is one of the most powerful stories in Scripture. I love that a woman is the heroine. I love that she has a strong person in her life that will speak the truth. This message is for all of us. Thank You, Father. Thank You that You love us and that You care and that You 
are in charge of the destiny of our lives. And even though sometimes we don't feel like we're making progress, you're always at work. Help us to be attentive to your voice. Help us to know your plan. Help us not to drift into a shadow mission. We pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.